let me, uh, let me welcome you again to New Community. We're glad that you're here. As you, uh, as you were finding your seats this morning, I wanted to remind you of uh, something that we talked about last week. So we are embarking on a series in Ruth, and we'll be spending the next uh, three weeks studying the book of Ruth. And as our staff uh, sat around and began to dream and, and pray about how we want this series to come off, one of the things that we felt really convicted about was that uh, it wouldn't be just two bald guys up here speaking about Ruth, but that we would actually uh, involve some of the valued uh, female members of our community. And so this week, next week, and the following week, we'll have um, three different women come up and share about how the book of Ruth has been impacting them as they've studied it. What is God speaking to them through this incredibly unique and beautiful story? So today, it is my pleasure to introduce to you one of my great friends. And if you do not know Hannah Davis, she is our children's pastor in the back. And you will, uh, after hearing her speak soon, realize why I love her so much. So uh, let's introduce Hannah. me today. Um, I have had a little head start on Ruth because whenever possible I love to have the kids lessons tie in with what the adults are learning. Um, So those car rides home when they're like, oh look, I learned about this, I learned about this, so did we. And the families can process that together. So a few months ago I started reading over Ruth and thinking about and praying about how we might teach this with the kids. Um, So the toddlers had it last week, and the big kids will do not this week, but next week and the following week. So I felt lucky that I had a few weeks head start when Russ and Kevin asked me to share. Um, But I'm really excited to share today because as I was reading and thinking about the book of Ruth, there was a theme that just, I feel like I've been processing around this theme for the last year and a half or two years, and it just stood out to me. And I'm excited to share it with you. So the idea that God impressed on me um, through the book of Ruth is God's favor and his perspective on our lives. And if you've read the book, last week we read the whole book together. um, But you know that Naomi had some really significant and tragic events in her life. First of all, right off the bat, there was a famine in her home country in the land and so it was so bad that they had to flee, and her family moved to a different, different land, different country. And right when, and just that alone would be a pretty, um, pretty significant event in anyone's life. And then when they get to this new country, her husband dies, and then ten years later, both of her sons die. So, you know, we're not. No one's arguing that Ruth's life is easy, and um, that sh- that God has totally blessed her in in that way. But Naomi didn't know that her story would be redeemed and used for good, and she didn't know that her daughter-in-law would stick by her side, and she didn't know that Boaz would take care of her, or that the line of David, the line of Jesus himself, would come through the death of her husband and sons and through the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. And Naomi doesn't exactly have the most stellar godly attitude in chapter 1, verse 20. And I kind of love this about, about her. She says she's coming home um, because she's heard that the Lord has brought back uh, plenty to her land. So, and she has nothing. And so she's coming home and people start to recognize her and call out to her, call her by name. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made me 
my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And she's just, she's just kind of ranting and like blaming God for all this um, bad stuff in her life. And she's actually pretty dramatic about it, at least, you know, in my way of thinking. And I know changing your name in Bible times was a little more common, <laughs> happened a lot. But to do something like that, to, to say, don't even call me by my name, call me this name, bitter, um, seems, seems kind of dramatic. Um, but I love that about Naomi is she just calls it like it is. And I have one, one friend in particular who, when you ask her, hey, Becca, how are you doing? Um, often she'll say, great, you know, it's been a good day. And, and other times you ask her how she's doing or ask her a question, and she's just honest and says, you know, today was really hard. And I'm sure you have friends like that and can appreciate the, their honesty. Because terrible things happen in life, and terrible things have happened in Naomi, and she's not in Naomi's life, and she's not happy about it. She's in the midst of the troubles, and she can't see how things will turn out. And the same is often true for us. In our lifetimes, we may never see the goodness that comes out of hardships we face. However, stories and lives like Naomi and Ruth, they inspire me to trust God when I can't see or understand what he's doing. The other thing that I love from the story is that God doesn't punish or withdraw his grace and his favor over Naomi because of the short-sightedness and her negative attitude. It's almost like God sees how she feels and agrees and is like, yeah, this, this is terrible. Things are bad. And to be honest, I think that God can handle our negative emotions and he can handle our little rants. Um, I found the greatest picture a few months ago when I was looking online for some cute Valentine love letters. So, on the right, it's written by a little boy about his sister. <laughs> Piper is my sister. She's nice to me a lot. Piper taught me a lot of stuff, like how to make my bed and put my stuff on my hangers. Piper is an awesome sister. And then I'm imagining the mom has, like, found these two letters on opposite ends of the house or on just different days. Piper. Piper smells like gross stuff. Poop. Dirt. That's my favorite. <laughs> Farts. Piper feels lumpy. <laughs> I don't know what that one is. <laughs> she is a loud as a howler monkey. Piper tastes disgusting. She looks like a monkey's butt. <laughs> and I saved this because I loved it so much I didn't know what I was going to use it for, but it just cracked me up. And it's so true, right? Like, our feelings can just flip-flop like that. And I think that God is okay with that. He... Um, you know, he knows Naomi was feeling like Piper smells gross that day about her life. Um, but I have to believe that Naomi, the majority of her life was probably more like the other letter about God. Because Ruth saw something so attractive about Naomi and Naomi's God that she was willing to give up everything. And she said, where you go, I will go, and your gods I will follow. So she gave up her family, her home, and her gods. Um, went to the wrong page. Just a second. So I have been reading this book called One Thousand Gifts by Anne Voskamp. And Anne is, I love reading her because she's the mom of a home, or homeschooling mom of six. 
She's a wife of a farmer, and she's a writer for Dayspring, which is um, like Hallmark Division. And so she's, I can relate to her on one hand, and yet she's also very different from me. I'm pretty to the point when I write, and I'm always trying to simplify things, you know, so I can explain these big concepts to, you know, three and four and six and seven-year-olds. And so I think I'm pretty to the point. She's very emotive, and she goes on these little detours and becomes real descriptive. And um, so it's been fun for me to read her book. And this book is all about her struggle with heartache and pain, while at the same time she has this deep desire to experience joy in her life. And the basis of the book is one of her good friends challenges her to start writing down or recording 1,000 things that she loves. And so it starts out as that. She just starts writing little things like, oh, the butterflies and, you know, these little things that she sees on her farm. And then it turns into 1,000 things that she's thankful for. And she begins to notice and discover God's grace and favor in the smallest details of her life. She's washing dishes one day and the bubbles in the sink, the sunlight's coming in and they're iridescent in color. And, you know, so one of her, number 89, the bubbles in the sink. And um, she kind of lists these. One day she chases out into the field after this huge harvest moon that has settled down over her farm. And um, so she's, yeah, she's just a great character, personality. And um, so even before I picked up this book, I had voiced to a few people and to myself that this was my year of thanks. And like Anne, I'm attempting to be more aware of the little gifts and the blessings in my life. And I've tried to slow down and not just notice the gifts, but really let them soak in and penetrate and fill up my soul. I think the timing of this last summer, we had our fourth baby, but we also were preparing to send off our first baby to college. And so I just think that perspective made me keenly aware of how fleeting this time really is, this time with my kids. And I'm trying to just breathe it in so I don't forget. I mean, I just hold up my little baby and, like, breathe <laughs> and smell it and try and let it soak in. Um, so going along with this theme of thanks that we've been talking about in our family, we chose an N name for our son. His name's Nashton, and we call him Nash. And so now, believe it or not, our family's initials spell thanks. It's Tom, Hannah, Abby, Nashton, Kendall, Sam. Um, and I told this to the first service. I, we, we didn't plan it until the end. Like, the other ones just kind of happened, and then we realized it, and we're like, oh, we have to have an end name. Um, but you guys who haven't had kids yet, you can, like, choose your word now and then, you know, make it work. So um, I have a little picture up. It also gave me a really good excuse to buy new stockings. So... Um, so anyway, every day I'm just trying to slow down, breathe deep, and take time to delight in God's favor to me. And I'm finding it in so many things like a late-night conversation with my grown-up daughter or the sound of my heater kicking on in our cozy home to making homemade pasta and kneading the dough with my second daughter, Abigail. And, um, and then my son, Sam, my seven-year-old, he makes these great faces. Every time we lock eyes, he goes, like, <laughs> I can't even do it, but he has these eyebrows that can just do whatever they want. <laughs> and so I don't know when that started, but I'm just trying to delight and notice and, and welcome those things. And then I'm especially wrapped up in this new little baby, Nashton. Um, I'm 
blending the warmth of his cheeks after he nurses, his perfect little rosebud lips and the dimples in his pudgy hands, and his sweaty little body as he falls asleep in my arms. And I'm letting those gifts just pour into me and fill up my soul. I'm experiencing God's love for me new each day through these tremendous gifts. I'm so amazed at the beauty of a baby. Maybe it's just Nash is really, really cute, but <laughs> but they're just they're just perfect. I mean, this little eyebrows, every little thing about him. So, um, by the way, if you share in that delight of babies and toddlers or big kids, for that matter, come see me afterwards, and I'll get you a volunteer out. <laughs> um, so they're just beyond wonderful, and I'm reminded of the scripture in Mark, Matthew seven eleven, where he where it says that if if you though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? I'm just in awe that God even thought up babies. I don't. I mean, they're just so wonderful. So. So I've been chewing on this idea of blessings in my life and God's favor because it's easy to give thanks when things go well, but not so easy to swallow God's graces when they come in the form of loss or disease or pain. In our family, while we've been tremendously blessed over the last few years, we've also had some tremendously hard things um, in both of our extended families. Um, Many of you know my sister-in-law, Tom's sister's cat, and she's struggling with that horrible disease of scleroderma. Um, And we've had about three other huge medical diagnoses kind of come down the last year and a half. Um, So I've been trying to process all of those. And then at the same time, thinking, you know, what do I do with an idea from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 that says we are to be joyful always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances, but this is for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. As Jesus sat with his disciples, he broke the bread and he gave thanks. He knew exactly what was coming for him. He would soon be killed. In Luke 22, um, it, in Luke 22, when he was breaking the bread, it said he gave thanks. In the original language. He gave thanks, reads Eucharistio. And the root word of Eucharistio is charis, and charis means grace. And the meaning of grace is favor, which is a free readiness that God bestows, you know, gives to us. And then Eucharistio also contains the derivative of the word charis, which is chara. And the meaning of chara is joy. And it's just amazing to me that in the phrase, he gave thanks, we find God's grace and joy through that simple act of giving thanks. Um, In Anne's book, as she becomes more aware of the small miracles and the gifts in her life, she comes face to face with this inner turmoil that she's been feeling between grace and blessings and the presence of pain and suffering in her life and in the world. In my favorite part, part of the book. Um, Her son narrowly escapes losing his hand to a piece of farm equipment. Um, A neighbor recently lost their son to a piece of farm equipment. And as she brings her son home from the hospital, her mom makes a statement, something like, oh, by the grace of God, he still has his hand. God spared. 
him. And as she's tucking her son in that night, she just is really wrestling with this. Like, why did I get God's grace and this other family didn't seem to? Um, So she's struggling with this whole idea. And this is my favorite quote in the book. And she says, And the more of the blessings I name, this theological problem deepens, the kind that manifests itself between the breakfast table and last light out. If I am numbering gift moments to 1,000 and now beyond, what moments in my life count as blessings? If I name this moment as gift, grace, what is the next moment? Curse? How do you know how to sift through a day, a life, and rightly read the graces, rightly ascertain the curses? What is good? What counts as grace? What is the heart of God? So I knew this book was about being thankful and giving thanks. But I didn't know how it would tie into what God had been doing in my life over the last few years with these hard situations, circumstances. Um, During that same time, I'd been, Tom and I took a Bible study and we were challenged by the words in James that said, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I was so encouraged by that verse because I knew there was like a, a prize at the end. It, this, all this hard stuff wasn't happening for nothing. I would, I would develop perseverance and then um, I'd be com- mature and complete. And I really held on to that promise and have held on to it. So for the first time... In my life, I began to give thanks for things that seemed like curses. I just made up my mind and said, I don't, I don't, this doesn't make sense, but thank you for this. Um, I don't like it. I wish I could get rid of it, but I know that you are good, and I choose to believe that you will use this for good, not just for me, but for the whole world. And then my mind goes to really horrible, evil things in the world, like human trafficking and school shootings and things like that that absolutely make no sense. And I don't think that I can say I'm at a point where I'm thanking God for those things. Um, But maybe it's not even what God would have me do. I think that maybe those things are more of a process of realizing that I can have joy even amidst the sorrow. Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life and pastor of Saddleback Church, he said that he used to think of uh, life as a series of peaks and valleys until right in the middle of his wildly successful book and his church growing and um, a ton of joy on that part of his life. His wife was diagnosed with cancer. And now he uses, and I love this picture, he uses the idea of a train track and how there are two parallel tracks running through life that are always constant. And one is sorrow, and one is joy. And they're both always there. And they're just realities. One day last year, when my mom was in the hospital, um, I was feeling really discouraged, and I felt like I was stuck there. And I'd sit on the couch for hours and just like try and figure out, pray and ask God to show me how to fix this and um, why. And I felt like God told me or showed me that I am who I am because of this. And, um, and I need to find, I need to get up and find a way to be joyful. And so if you know me, you know, I like music and I like love to dance. So I 
cranked up my music, and I went down in the basement to do laundry, and I think I just ended up dancing for like an hour, um, just <laughs> some sort of like hip-hop music or something. Um, but for me, that's, that's one thing, one way that I can find joy in my life. Um, and it was a really great day for me and a great lesson because I felt like, you know, I felt like I was in the basement of life and, and I was dancing. Um, and so that was kind of a turning point for me. Um, so as I think about the book of Ruth, I'm thankful for pictures of God's providence and his plan in these two women's lives. As hard as it was for Naomi to lose her husband and her two sons, the line of David and Jesus would not have come had it not been for Ruth and Boaz. We see what Naomi could not see because it didn't play out until many generations later. God's plan, his favor, was there all along and remains true in our lives, whether we see it or not. So today, I hope that you're encouraged by the book of Ruth in the knowledge that God has a free and ready favor toward you, whether you feel it or see it, it's there. I want to leave you with one last story and one more hard thing that our family has gone through. Last spring, my husband's brother, uh, Jameson, was born with both of his arms that stopped just right above the elbows. And as you can imagine, they found this out during an ultrasound visit. And they were just devastated. It was their first child. He is their first child. And um, we all were devastated. Um, but last week we were at an event. There was a gal in the community who put together a fundraising event to help raise money for prosthetic arms. And there was a woman there. And at the end of the night, she pulled Brooke aside. And she said, Brooke is Jameson's mom. She said, you are the one who is blessed. This seems so hard right now, but the fact that Jameson has no arms is a blessing. She said, just wait. <laughs> just wait, and you'll see all the wonderful things that will come because of this. And by the end of the conversation, they were both in tears. And um, the conversation was so valuable to Brooke because this woman knew the struggle. She knew the heartache. She knew the frustration of being a child who didn't have arms, and she knew the, the hurt of being a teenager who looked different than everyone else. She was missing one of her arms, and she had a prosthetic arms, and she had that valuable perspective that Brooke and Jim don't, they're starting to see it, but they're in the midst of it, and so it's hard for them to see. Um, but it's already started to happen. I'm going to show you a little video of Jameson, and you'll see how wonderful he is. But they've, they've met so many awesome people, and let you watch. So you can see how awesome, I mean, he's just, he's NASA's little buddy, um, and he's, he's going to do great. And he, those are his first little set of prosthetic arms that they put in. So I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then uh, Russ is going to follow following that. So. All right. Dear Lord, thank you for um, the book of Ruth and the stories of Naomi and Ruth, and for giving us a glimpse of your favor and perspective in life. I love listening to Hannah share, not only because of uh, hearing how God works in her family and stories that she has been telling, but also because she just has a, a fun way of communicating, especially stories of her dancing for hours. And I even like that little infomercial right in the middle for nursery and toddlers. That was awesome.
But uh, last week, we uh, started this series in Ruth, and I'm looking forward to each week having uh, someone share just what, how God is using this book to speak to them. Uh, but just a quick reminder of last week, we did a little intro. We learned that Jane Austen wrote the book of Ruth, and we kind of talked through some of those pieces and what are some of the main themes in the book. And uh, what I want to do this morning is uh, just to wrap up our time by speaking on the subject of Providence, how God works and moves in unique ways in our lives. And to start that, we're going to watch a, a quick little video. I don't know what runs through your mind when you see a video like that, but for me, all kinds of questions kind of flood into my mind and memories and wonderings and questions like, uh, what are the odds of something like that even happening? Or... <clears throat> Does this type of thing ever happen to you, maybe on a smaller scale, where it seems like coincidence and chance and happenings kind of all come together in a unique way? And Maybe you ask the question, what kind of role does God play in this? Is this something that was predetermined from the beginning of time or something that uh, came as a random set of possibilities because the universe is set up that way? Who knows? But it causes us to ask questions. It also causes us maybe to remember stories. Just uh, three weeks ago, I think, a guy stood up in church, first service named Darwin, shared about how um, on his long, windy driveway in the country, he dropped a set of keys. Maybe you were here when he shared it. And couldn't drive his car. And then later that day, some neighbor is walking a dog, and about a mile from the house finds the keys and brings them to him. Just random, small, simple stuff. Maybe you've heard of couples that have met and fallen in love with the, their dream person simply because of a chance meeting or best friends that develop because of some random time together. I had a friend in college. He was a sweet mate of mine, and he um, went back home for the summer to Ohio, and he was on this familiar strip of uh, drive, he was on his way to a location. He needed to get there on time. He knew he was going to be late. And so there was this long straightaway, and there were about three cars in front of him, and he knew where the stop light would be. And so he decided, if I pass all three of them, I can get to a place where then I'm not going to be late. And so he passed car one, he passed car two, and then realized he didn't have enough time to pass car three safely. And so he slowed down, came to a stop behind that car at the light, the light turns green, the car pulls out, a semi T-bones it. He hops out of the car, runs, and is there with the man while he breathes his last few breaths. What do you do with that? And he asks himself the question, was I supposed to be there? Was I not supposed to be there? Was it me? Was it, should it have been him? How, how does this all fit together? And, and so you start really wrestling with this theme of providence. And the book of Ruth speaks into that particular subject and before I go any further on what I think the book of Ruth is saying, I, I need to start out with a little disclaimer, maybe a big disclaimer. Now, this subject, this idea of free will, determinism, providence, God superintending over everything that happens, is, to be honest, it is way above my pay grade. It is way above my intellectual capacity. It is beyond what I can kind of understand or know. There's two primary themes in theology related to this. There's the determinist perspective which holds that everything is predetermined from the beginning of time, before even time was created, before the world was even created. Everything was lined up. And it's basically a script that we're all kind of on, and it's playing out in time, and God knows everything that will happen. 
There's a second belief that's more in the line of free will, and that the future has possibilities, that not everything has been predetermined, that our very choices, the very events of life, the, the very prayers that we offer have a part in shaping the possibility of what the future will look like. And the debate is long and strong on both sides. There's experts in both camps. Um, you have guys like uh, Einstein. Einstein was a determinist. He believed that everything from the beginning of time was organized and planned out, and he believed his science and his understanding of the world and creation determined that that was the way that it was. And then Heisenberg came along, and he proposed the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of quantum physics. And in that principle, it says that there is uncertainty. It's woven to the very fabric of everything that's created, that that at the very core of everything there are electrons, and if you go to measure electron, the electron always moves, and the electron can be in this location one time, and this location another, and both places at the same time, because woven into the very fabric of everything is this level of uncertainty, and so there is possibility in the future, and nothing is set completely. And so you have this theory of relativity, you have theories of uncertainty, and right about all those times where my mind just goes, and kind of, I go, I have no idea. You know, and I, I could stand up here and pretend to uh, be able to say that this is what I know to be completely true, but I will never be a person that stands in front of you and says and pretends that I know something that, honestly, I don't think many of us, if any of us, could really know. So I'm not, uh, in the areas of my study or opinion or belief that I feel very confident, and I'm going to communicate with certainty, but in these areas of uncertainty, I'm just going to tell you I'm, frankly, uncertain. And I don't know that the book of Ruth gives us all of the pictures that could cause us to answer it. But I do know that in studying it over the last little while, that there are certain things that I can be absolutely certain about in the text. And what I want to do in just our last few moments is highlight some of those things that I think with absolute certainty the book of Ruth speaks to related to this idea of providence. The first one is this, that God is intricately involved with the future. He's intricately involved with the future and in, in that future specifically in our life. Now, if you look at the book of Ruth, what's interesting is you're noticing right from the very beginning that the author is painting a picture that things are going from, like, bad to worse. It's not a really good scenario. What you notice at the very beginning is the whole scene, the whole story is set in the city of Bethlehem or the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the technical understanding of what that term means, it means the city of bread. So you have a famine, no food, in the city of bread. Irony. It's this uh, understanding that, hey, things aren't good and things are getting worse. So right from the beginning, you begin to see that this family, in the midst of the famine, leaves Israel and goes to Moab. Now, to us, that doesn't make, uh, you know, whatever. We left some other state for another state because employment was there. But in this case, it is a purposeful, in many ways, failure of leadership on the part of the family in the decisions they made. So they made several decisions. One, they made the decision to join another nation at a time in which God said, don't join other nations. They specifically went and joined the Moabites. They aligned themselves and partnered with a wicked nation. This is a nation, just to give you a little concept, not only did they worship false gods, but the very start of them as a nation was an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. That's the very beginning of the Moabites. And so you have this nation that is, wants nothing to do with Yahweh and complete 
antagonism to the people of God, and yet they go and align themselves. Not only do they do that, but they begin to intermarry, which God specifically forbid in the Old Testament, saying not to do that. Then you notice that right after that in the story that you have the death of all of the breadwinners in the family, both Elimelech and both of his sons, the ones that would provide resources for the the ladies at that time, all perished in short succession. And so you see all of this, which brings us to the place where Hannah just described where Mara, bitterness, is on the scene. And she's saying everything is not the way that it's supposed to be. And so we have to ask ourselves questions when we see the first part of this story. And some of the questions that we ask probably can't be answered. Like, did God cause the famine or allow the famine simply because of the disobedience of the Israelites in the midst of the judges, the period of the judges? The answer is the text doesn't tell us. We don't know. Maybe the other question that some of you are asking is, were the deaths of the men caused by the disobedience and the fact that they left and the fact that they intermarried? The answer is, we don't know. But what we do know is from that point of the story forward, it is very intentional on the part of the author to communicate that God is intimately involved and intricately involved in all of the details of his people for their good. And you see it in the story with the phrase, it just so happened. So in the beginning of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 22, it says this, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of of the barley harvest. It just so happened that they came right when the famine is ending, right at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then in verse chapter 2, verse 3, it says, So she set out, Ruth, and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. So it just so happened that she was in the field of Boaz. Now what the author is doing is he's using a Hebrew idiom And the term happened to chance is playing off of this idiom. And the idiom is, her chance chanced upon, or another version of it is, she chanced upon a chance. But what he's saying is he's using great sarcasm. He's like, yeah, it was a chance upon a chance. Yeah, this could have never happened. And he's playing with us as readers. He's helping us to get to see the picture. So to break down the story a little bit, this is what he's basically saying it just so happened that Ruth and Naomi came to Bethlehem at the barley harvest. And it just so happened that she gleaned from a portion of the field that belonged to Boaz. And it just so happened that he was a godly, wealthy, single man. And it just so happened that he was the nearest relative or one of the near relatives to Naomi and Elimelech. And it just so happened that he thought she was hot. And it just so happened that they ended up getting married and just so happened that they had the, you know, the line of David, ultimately the line of Jesus. The point is that these things just don't happen, right? So you look at it all throughout the scripture. It just so happened that Jesus passed Zacchaeus when he was in the tree. And it just so happened that he came to the well when the woman from Samaria visited. And it just so happened that Nicodemus happened to be in the exact place when Jesus was up at night. These things just don't happen. God orchestrates them in unique ways because he is intricately involved in the lives of his people for their good. Second thing I noticed in the book of Ruth is this. God uses any 
and everyone to accomplish his good purposes. God uses any and everyone to accomplish his good purposes. What I think is so true in this story is that Ruth really shouldn't be in the story. If you look at the story with uh, just straight glance, you would recognize from the beginning that like she doesn't fit the script. She shouldn't be the great-grandmother of King David. It's, that's not what's supposed to happen. Let me give you some reasons why. One, she's of the wrong race. She's from a different nation. She's not of the tribe of Israel. She's a, from Moab. She's a foreigner. Second, she's of the wrong gender. Women at that time were not given authority or respect. The fact that this book is even written about her and Naomi is a, is a, um, a testament to God and how he works and moves in the world. Third, she is of the wrong religion. She originally was worshiping false gods. Everything she knew, everything she was a part of, had a different belief system until she turned and came with Naomi to the people of God. And then she was at the wrong time. I mean, she's in the midst of a famine, as a foreigner, as a widow, and in deep poverty. That's not a good situation. This is not what you would think would be the script for the great-grandmother of King David. It doesn't work this way. But see, God uses whoever it is that's faithful. I'm convinced that if you and I act in faithfulness, if we respond in faith with God, if we believe, as it says in the book of Hebrews, that God, that we believe that He exists and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, if that's what it means to be a person of faith, if we believe in the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, which is what it means to be a person of faith, then I believe that none of us should ever feel disqualified to serve God, regardless of our race, our sex, our color, our intellect, our finances, or any other qualifying factor that you think you can come up with. The fact of the matter is God will use any and everyone He desires to use that's faithful to Him for his good purposes, including you, including me. And then last but not least, providence, I believe, gives us freedom. This idea of providence, God superintending or God overseeing things and weaving them in together in a way that fulfills his work. If we believe that God is intimately and intricately involved in your life for your good, and if we believe that he will work through any and everyone that he sees fit, that is faithful to him for his purposes. If we believe those two things, then I believe the third one is very true, that we can trust that God gives us by this providence great freedom. That we can act in that freedom. So here's an example. I think like Ruth, if God calls you, like he did the Morrises, you can leave your hometown. You can leave your family and you can take on commitments that you would have never imagined taking on years ago. Because he's with you. Because he oversees all of it. Because he's crafting together what's going to happen in your guys' life in a way that's far beyond what you can imagine. And the same is true if we put it in our context right here. That you could leave your job if God asked you to do that. That you could leave Spokane if God asked you to do that. You could make radical commitments. You could undertake new ventures. You could launch out in mission. You can invest in this city. You can care for your neighbor. You can love a friend. You can do all these things that we believe 
with absolute confidence that God has called us to do. We can do all of them with great assurance because we believe that somehow, in ways that kind of just do that to my mind, he's got it all under control. So whether it's been predetermined or whether it's this possibility of the future, that God is so woven into all of it that this complexity of the providence of God that we will never fully understand, we can know with certainty that he is absolutely involved in your life and mine for our good, and that he is in it to accomplish his purposes, and with those beliefs, we can live in absolute freedom. Let me pray for us this morning.